Welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. Thank you so much for joining us. This week, we're talking health, healthcare, and health policy. And today, we want to talk about one of the biggest public health catastrophes that we've ever seen in this country, the Flint water crisis. We want to start with the person who represents Flint in Congress, who is also dealing with yet another water contamination crisis in his district. Congressman Dan Kildee is a Democrat from Flint Township representing Michigan's 5th Congressional District. Congressman Kildee, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, thanks for having me on. So before we get into these issues about water contamination, a lot has happened since the last time you were on the show when it comes to the investigation into President Trump and Russian interference in the 2016 election. So we wanted to get your thoughts on that as well. Uh, The House Judiciary Committee voted yesterday to subpoena the full Mueller report and other documents. I know you don't sit on that committee, but what do you hope will happen from here with that issue? Well, I just hope there's greater transparency. Uh, The Mueller report was paid for by the American taxpayer. It's a critical report on the activities of the President of the United States and those people around him, specifically focusing on activity uh, involving Russia's interference with the presidential election in 2016. This is really important um, information that the public has a right to know. And so I support the effort of the Judiciary Committee to gain access to what we were promised, and that is the full report. Only when we have all the information can Congress and the American public make informed judgments about this question. And the idea that we should accept a four-page letter written by a presidential appointee rather than the full report with all the background information is is really uh, not the kind of transparency that a democracy ought to adhere to. And just today we're hearing that there are people on Mueller's team suggesting that that summary did not accurately reflect uh, the legal issues that the, Trump, that the Trump administration and Trump himself might be facing. What are, what are your thoughts about the way in which that came out and the way that this has been sort of publicly consumed in many ways? I mean, it's, it's for, for the Trump administration, it's been almost like uh, this is their big vindication. They're kicking off their campaign with this. Well, you know, they did a very good job, I have to give them credit, of stage managing the end of the Mueller report. Uh, they had the attorney general write a four-page summary and have stalled the release of the full report. So, you know, one of the things that President Trump is good at is trying to create a narrative. And he has done, uh, I think, a masterful job of obfuscating what could be some pretty serious and I think rather damning Uh, information in the Mueller report. But we won't know that until we see the report. Uh, But it's obvious that the way they released this was intended to minimize the effect that the report would have on the president's reputation and maximize their ability to claim full exoneration. What we're hearing from the New York Times reporting is that those closely associated with the development of the report itself do not see it anything like the full exoneration that the president is claiming. But again, I can't make those judgments until I see the report myself. And that's why it's so important that we get our our hands on it as soon as possible. 
And, and speaking of congressional oversight, uh, this committee that you do sit on, House Ways and Means, uh, the committee chairman sent a written request to the IRS commissioner for six years of President Trump's personal and business tax returns this week. Um, again, you sit on that committee. What was your reaction to that, and what do you hope happens with that uh, request? Well, I've been working very closely with Chairman Neal on this subject. Uh, he has taken a very deliberate approach to ask for returns for six years from not only the president's individual return, but eight business entities that really comprise the business empire of Donald Trump. It is important that we have this information for a couple of reasons. One, the committee is examining whether the IRS adequately audits and enforces tax law on a president. Uh, We don't have a law that requires presidents to be audited, but it has been the practice of the IRS for years to audit the presidential tax returns. But we have no idea to uh, any way of knowing whether President Trump's returns are under audit. And there's another really important point here. For almost half a century, the presidents of the United States and candidates for president have provided access to their tax returns in order to assure the American public that their public decision-making is not somehow affected by their narrow personal financial interests. If anyone should be subject to that, that standard, it would be Donald Trump, who claims to be an enormously wealthy person. We know he's wealthy, uh, but claims to be one of the wealthier people in this country, continues to take uh, control of his vast holdings while simultaneously serving as president. So there is a specific question that we have, but also there is a big public interest in making sure that we know that our president is only serving the American people and not serving his own interests. One way to determine that is to look at what the president's interests are and measure those against the public decisions that he is making. It's interesting. You don't usually think of House Ways and Means, uh, you know, a committee that is, uh, you know, focused on tax policy, being the committee that is using its, you know, authority as an oversight committee. Uh, it seems like there are a number of committees now that are all sort of working in tandem to uh, to get to the bottom of some of these issues. Uh, one question that I have about this is. These two, the first two things we're talking about here today, in some ways could be related, right? I mean, if the Mueller report is fully uh, given over to Congress uh, and including the documents that they use to reach their conclusions, uh, some of this might come out in that as well, correct? It's possible. We don't know, for example, whether the uh, investigators uh, involved with the Mueller report gained access to tax return information. We, we don't know that. We wouldn't know that. Even if we get the report, it's not clear that there will be specific references to this. But the, the Ways and Means Committee uh, jurisdiction is quite specific, as you mentioned. It is related to our oversight responsibilities for tax policy and also the oversight of the IRS itself. There's a, there's a unique provision that applies only in the House to the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. It's the Section 6103 of the U.S. Tax Code that gives the chairman the authority to order a tax return from any taxpayer. That's something that is old law. It was enacted in 1921, and it's specifically intended to make sure that Congress has the full authority that it needs to provide the check on the executive branch 
and to gain information that it needs in order to make the decisions that are that it's charged with. So while in some ways it looks like these investigations are all happening simultaneously, uh, the work of the Ways and Means Committee has been quite separate from the Mueller report, from the Oversight Committee's work, from the Judiciary Committee report, from the Financial Services Committee report uh, that they're trying to seek. Um, so it, it is simultaneously, but but not coordinated with those other investigations. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. I'm speaking with Congressman Dan Kildee, a Democrat from Flint Township, representing Michigan's 5th Congressional District. And, you know, we're spending most of the hour today talking about Flint. Uh, Before we get to the water crisis there and what's happening now, you're also dealing with PFAS contamination in your district, these industrial chemicals that are leaching into water sources now all over the state, but especially concentrated in in, in areas that are uh, part of your district as well. Um, you're You're introducing a bill today that deals with that issue. Can you talk a little bit about that? I am. Along with Senator Stabenow, Senator Peters, and others, I'm introducing the VET PFAS Act, which would require the Department of Veterans Affairs to cover treatment of health conditions connected to exposure to this dangerous PFAS chemical. It would also make any illness connected to PFAS exposure a service-connected disability, so that veterans who might be having health issues and may actually be fully or partially disabled would be eligible for disability payments from the VA. It's our view that a person who puts on the uniform of the country and is willing to make that sacrifice is a a person with whom we've made a promise. We say to these military members and their families that if something happens to you, we will take care of you. We now know that one hazard that they may face is exposure to these dangerous chemicals because they're used quite frequently on military bases. We have to be able to say to them, if, uh, if your disability or if your health condition is related to PFAS exposure, we will take care of you. So how does this also play out in, in other aspects of policymaking? Right now, I think in, in Michigan, we're also having a big debate about acceptable levels. Well, I guess no level is really acceptable of PFAS, much like lead. But at the same time, there is no enforceable standard right now for uh, for, for the levels in water. Uh, what are you working on right now? And what do you see happening when it comes to making sure that there is some sort of enforceable standard so that people who are contaminating or that are responsible for these contaminations are held accountable? Well, we're going at this on a number of fronts. One of them, as you mentioned, is the need for an enforceable health standard, particularly for drinking water, uh, for PFAS. And so we have legislation that I've introduced with a number of other members that would require the Environmental Protection Agency to bring forth an enforceable standard for PFAS contamination in drinking water and groundwater and surface water. And, and to be clear, so an enforceable standard, I mean, the, right now, it's instead of just saying no PFAS is allowed, having a small enforceable standard actually allows, you know, of, of what is it, two parts per trillion or something along those lines could be used to, uh, you know, even though that is close to almost no acceptable level, you're still able to, uh, y- you know, enforce that. Sure. I mean, for example, it would it would allow the EPA to order the cleanup of groundwater or drinking water. It would it would actually give us the authority we need to say that if drinking water is negatively affected, that a water operator 
can be forced to take whatever steps are necessary in order to to make sure that public health is being protected. And just to give you an idea how dangerous this PFAS chemical is, it is, as you mentioned, the health standard likely will be measured in the single parts per trillion. Uh, That's like a few drops in 20 Olympic swimming pools. So this is really dangerous stuff, and we need to treat it as such. And the idea that it's not even treated as a toxic chemical or there is no health standard, I think it's just completely unacceptable. So we're fighting this battle on every front, uh, taking care of the health needs of veterans and their families, looking at the health impact at the public in general and making sure that we push for them to be taken care of, cleaning up PFAS where we know it exists, but perhaps as importantly, trying to prevent more PFAS contamination from occurring by having a national standard that's enforceable and limiting or eliminating the use of PFAS going forward. So, I mean, whether, I mean, when it comes to water contamination in general, whether it is PFAS or, or lead or, or other particles that can get into water, water at this point, as, you know, public officials work on the regulatory aspects of this, what should regular people be doing to make sure that their water is safe to drink at this point? Well, I think, first of all, they should, they should require that their whoever their water operator is, if they're on a well, they should have their well tested if, if they have any doubt whether or not PFAS is in the water. Uh, and if they are in a municipal system, they should make sure that they ask that the municipal system test for PFAS. The first important way to protect oneself is to be armed with information. And so that's step one. And I think beyond that, once the public knows whether or not their drinking water is contaminated with PFAS, then they're in a much better position to push for cleanup. There is the, the technology is available to filter PFAS out of water. It's already being used in uh, Oscoda, Michigan, at the Wurtsmith Air Force Base that I represent. Not enough, mind you, but the technology does exist. It's not cheap, but it's there, and we need to make sure that we take advantage of that. Hmm. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. We're speaking with Congressman Dan Kildee, a Democrat from Flint Township, representing Michigan's 5th Congressional District. Now, uh, Representative Kildee, uh, there was some big news recently related to the Flint water crisis, and that's that a, uh, a judge has allowed a lawsuit to go forward that names Governor Rick Snyder as a defendant. Uh, he was previously, uh, it was previously decided that he would not be a defendant on that lawsuit, and now this judge has reinstated him as a defendant. Uh, And in the judge's opinion, she said that initially the governor was indifferent because instead of mitigating the risk of harm caused by the contaminated water, he covered it up. And that's a direct quote from her opinion. And now how significant is this decision on the judge's part? I think it is significant because justice for the people of Flint will come in a lot of different forms. One way is to make sure that this doesn't happen again by replacing all those lead service lines. Uh, the other way is to make sure that they have the care that they need, health care and developmental support for kids. But also it's important that the people who are responsible for this are held accountable. That's another form of justice for the people of Flint. And it's impossible for me to imagine uh, that the governor of the state and the departments, all of which, many of which were involved in covering up this problem, that they would not be held responsible. Clearly, this happened on Governor Rick Snyder's watch. And the idea that 
people that he appointed and directed would not only face civil but now criminal liability, but he would essentially walk away from this job without having to face either. It doesn't seem acceptable. So I'm glad that the court has determined that Governor Snyder is going to have to answer for his act- actions. And I trust the, the, uh, the uh, judicial system to get to the facts and come to a conclusion that is fair. Do we have real reason to believe that there was uh, malicious intent here? Or, I mean, if this was just simply a bad decision that put people at risk, do you worry that there's a possible chilling effect on public officials making these really high-consequence decisions? Well, I think if it has a chilling effect, it should be that public officials, whenever information like this comes to them, that they treat it with the kind of urgency that they should. Uh, you know, even if this circumstance had been uh, unavoidable, where I think Governor Snyder and those who work for him fell short is that their reaction was to treat it as a public relations problem, not as a threat to the health of people in a community that's already struggling. And so it's hard to say whether there was malicious intent, because I can't look into the mind or the heart of another human being. But it's very clear to me that at least the governor was quite cavalier about the health interests of citizens of the state and much more interested in, in trying to manage the problem as a public relations issue rather than as a health crisis. And I think he clearly, in my mind, is culpable in that regard. We'll be talking much more uh, in, over the course of this show about this lawsuit. And, and later in the show, we're actually also going to be speaking with the creator of a play that was inspired by the victims of the Flint water crisis. And uh, there, there's some issue there. I'm curious uh, to get your, your thoughts about this, Congressman. Um, the creator of that play recently told the Detroit News that he had reached out to public officials to come out uh, to, to see that play, I believe, and said that no one had responded. I'm, I'm, and you're office says that you never received a request. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to address that. Yeah, first of all, I thank uh, this individual for doing this work. I think anything that calls attention to the Flint water crisis uh, is important and should be commended. And there is not a place that I won't go to talk about the crisis that my hometown continues to face. So we had no record in my office. I don't know, perhaps somehow he talked to somebody and thought that it would get to me. It did not. And I hope that maybe at some point in the near future, I have a chance to uh, to see the play uh, because I think it's important work and I want to support it. Congressman Dan Kildee, Democrat from Flint Township, representing Michigan's 5th Congressional District. Thank you so much for joining Detroit Today. Thank you. And we will continue to talk about this lawsuit and whether Governor Rick Snyder will face personal penalties for his handling of the Flint water crisis. And we want to hear from you. Do you think that the former governor should face personal consequences for his handling of that situation? What does justice look like in that situation? The number is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back. <laughs> 